Last week in Pastor Steve's final message as pastor here, he brought us a message about worry. He took his text from 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, pardon me, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 3 through 12. If I were to summarize the message in a few short words, that mic is picking up just a little too much. I would say something like this, Christians have a living hope. In this living hope, our faith will be tested by various trials. In the end, no matter what happens in this life, we live now in the reality that our souls are secure for eternity in Christ. To pick up in our series in Exodus, uh, let's look back two weeks. In that message, we looked at Exodus chapter 28, which describes in great detail the robes of the high priest and his sons, as well as the need of their being set apart for the work of the tabernacle. What we tried to see with the eyes of faith was how this priesthood pointed us to Jesus Christ and our relationship with him. Jesus Christ not only bears us up on his shoulders, carrying us into the presence of the Father, he also holds us near to his heart. If we have trusted Christ, our names are carved deeply into the precious stones on Christ's shoulders and heart. They cannot be scratched off or altered in any way because that which has been given to Jesus by the Father, he will in no way lose, not one. Finally, at the end of chapter 28, God gives instructions to Moses that the priests must be three things, anointed, consecrated, and sanctified for the work they must do. I know, big biblical words that some of us have a hard time wrapping our minds around. We talked a little bit about what they mean. I'll just summarize it quickly and we'll get into today's text. To anoint means that the Holy Spirit of God is present and active in the life of a believer. To consecrate means to fill empty and willing hands with the exact and perfect tools needed to perform the work. And to sanctify means to cleanse from all impurities that a life of set-apart holiness might be lived. All three are clear representations of what the Holy Spirit does in the life of the faithful Christian day unto day as we, too, seek to do God's work. I've titled today's message, Consecrated for Service. And we'll read Exodus chapter 29, and we will look at the first 30 verses. Exodus chapter 29, verses 1 through 30. This is the living word of God. And this is what you shall do to them that hallow them, oh, sorry, to hallow them for ministering to me as priests. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers anointed with oil. You shall make them of wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket with the bull and the two rams. And Aaron and his sons you shall bring to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and you shall wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments, put the tunic on Aaron, and the robe of the ephod, the ephod and the breastplate, 
and gird him with the intricately woven band of the ephod. You shall put the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban, and you shall take the anointing oil, pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put tunics on them, and you shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and put the hats on them. The priesthood shall be theirs for a perpetual statute. So you shall consecrate Aaron and his sons. You shall also have the bull brought before the tabernacle of meeting, and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. You shall take some of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and pour all the blood beside the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them, and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull, with its skin and its offal, you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. You shall also take one ram, and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram, and you shall take its blood and sprinkle it all around on the altar. Then you shall cut the ram in pieces, wash its entrails and its legs, and put them with its pieces and with its head. And you shall burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. You shall also take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the ram. Then you shall kill the ram, and take some of its blood, and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron, and on the tip of the right ear of his sons, on the thumb of their right hand, and on the big toe of their right foot, and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar. And you shall take some of the blood that is on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and on his garments, on his sons and on the garments of his sons with him. And he and his garments shall be hallowed and his sons and his sons' garments with him. Also, you shall take the fat of the ram, the fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, the two kidneys and the fat on them, the right thigh, for it is a ram of consecration, one loaf of bread, one cake made with oil, and one wafer from the basket of the unleavened bread that is before the Lord. And you shall put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons, and you shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. You shall receive them back from their hands and burn them on the altar as a burnt offering, as a sweet aroma before the Lord. It is an offering made by fire to the Lord. <clears throat> then you shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's consecration and wave it as a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. And from the ram of the consecration, you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering, which is waved, and the thigh of the heave offering, which is raised, of that which is for Aaron and of that which is for his sons. It shall be from the children of Israel for Aaron and his sons by a statute forever, for it is a heave offering. It shall be a heave offering from the children of Israel from the sacrifices of their peace offerings, that is, their heave offering to the Lord. And the holy garments of Aaron shall be his sons after him to be anointed in them 
and to be consecrated in them. That son who becomes priest in his place shall put them on for seven days when he enters the tabernacle of meeting to minister in the holy place. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we are looking at this uh, very difficult passage of scripture for us as modern day Christians to sometimes grapple with, we ask that by your spirit you would give us the light uh, that we need uh, to see Jesus here. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how carefully you just listened to the reading of God's word, uh, but basically this sermon just preached itself in that reading. There's nothing complicated or hidden here, so let's just take a little bit and have a look at what uh, God is telling Moses to do. Today's passage brings us to a point in the tabernacle instructions that must have been quite a turning point for the people of Israel. Up till now, God has given instructions for a beautiful tabernacle full of gold and silver and bronze and blue and purple and scarlet. And even though an altar of sacrifice is described, no sacrifice had yet been performed there. So to set up my message Today, I'd like you to imagine a scenario in which God says to the people, make me a tabernacle, which he does. And the people respond enthusiastically with pleasure. We will make you a tabernacle. God says, bring me gold and precious stones and purple and scarlet and blue and fine twined linen and use them in my tabernacle. And the people reply, certainly you have delivered us. We are honored to return thanks to you. But to the people of Israel, these beautiful things are an end. They are the goal. To God, they are only a means to an end. The greater gift has yet to be requested, which in the eyes of God is much more precious than gold. So now, with the lesser gifts of gold and silver having been offered and received, The greater claim is made by God and continues to be made. He says, okay, you have given the donation. Now, give the donor. Give the donor. Many people are pleased with the tabernacle as a beautiful creation. But if we close our eyes to the ultimate purpose of the tabernacle, we have not even begun to understand what God is trying to teach us here. We do not know the meaning of life until we know the meaning of death. You and I, too, have built a beautiful tabernacle. We have spared nothing of gold and silver and purple and blue and fine twined linen and all manner of precious stones and beautiful things. But what is it that prevents God from descending and dwelling there? I think the answer is simple yet profound. It is because the blood has not yet been shed there. If our idea of life, our idea of religion, or maybe if you prefer, let's call it Christian life, ends before the sacrifice has been given, all we have done is trick ourselves into a subtle piece of self adoration. God will come 
by way of sacrifice. This is a hard lesson. I don't know any delicate words that I can use to portray this. It is offensive, but it is also powerful. Without the shedding of blood, we have a tabernacle without a God. A church, for example, can no more live without the blood than a physical body can live without the blood. And the church is the body of Christ. So it is his blood that gives his body life. With that, let's get into the text. The first nine verses talk about the preparation for the ceremony. We'll divide that into three parts, really. First part is the purpose. What is the purpose of this ceremony? This ceremony, which is actually carried out uh, later on in the next book of the Bible, actually in Leviticus chapter 8, uh, is only being described here. It had a very straightforward purpose. It was to set the priests aside for God's work. So if it is true that the Old Testament sacrifices all pointed toward the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, and I believe it is, then it is the cross which not only saves, but also prepares us for life, for God's work. It is, sadly, a truncated form of the gospel which merely saves, as awesome as that work is. Beyond that initial encounter and humble submission to Christ's saving work on the cross, the gospel speaks of an abundant, eternal, transformative life for the believer who has passed from death to life. It is a beginning. The next thing we'll look at is the components of this preparation. When we read what God was asking to be sacrificed in this priestly consecration ceremony, we can broadly give two basic elements, the animals and the bread. There's some division there, bulls, goats, and loaves, and wafers, and so on. But those are the two basic elements. Animal sacrifice is something we have looked at quite a bit in the book of Exodus, beginning with the sacrifice of the Passover lamb way back in the earlier chapters of Exodus. And it is clear how animal sacrifice points to Jesus Christ as the innocent one who died in our place that we might live, shedding his blood for our atonement. We've considered the bread to some degree uh, when we looked at the unleavened bread in the Passover feast. So I don't want to spend too much time here, but in general, the bread speaks of fellowship with God and with one another. It was made of very fine flour because Christ's body was ground down in his sufferings on our behalf. It is unleavened because Christ's life has not the merest speck of the leaven of impurity. And it is mixed with oil because Jesus Christ as the Son of God did all things completely immersed and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 says this, 
that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that you may be stressed. that you may not have the foggiest idea of what I'm talking about. Why? What does fellowship do? That your joy may be a cup half full. That your joy may be full. Fellowship with the Father, fellowship with the Son, that your joy may be full. By the way, it is perfectly possible to have joy through tears. Joy has nothing to do with the things that are happening to you or around you. That's called happiness because those are the things that are happening. Joy is way deeper. Joy has everything to do with fellowship with the Father and with his Son, that for which we were designed. The final step of the consecration ceremony was the washing, dressing, and anointing of the priests. We notice in verse 4 that this entire process of consecration didn't take place inside the tabernacle, but outside the door of the courts. This was a time of preparation for the tabernacle and those that would minister there. The process of consecration, by the way, I keep using this big biblical word, consecration. Don't be intimidated by it. I'm using it because it's, it's the word here. It means, consecration means to have the perfect tools placed in willing hands. That's what consecration is. If you consecrate someone, you are giving them the tools that they need to accomplish what they need to accomplish. So don't be confused by that word. This process of consecration began with washing. And as awkward as this may seem, Aaron and his sons did not wash themselves you'll notice in the text it says that they received a washing. I'm not even going to speculate on what was involved. I assume because of Jewish modesty laws that this was done in a careful and tasteful manner. But the fact of the matter is that God told Moses, the representative of the law, the representative of the word, in verse 4, that you shall wash them. This ceremony is deeply ingrained in Jewish culture culture from this point forward. In 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11, Paul has just reminded the Christians from what they have delivered. This is one of the most hopeful passages for me personally in the entire New Testament. Because Paul says to these people that are now in church worshiping, like many of us are today, he says, They were fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, 
sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, and therefore, in that state, they could not enter the kingdom of God. But, don't you love that word in the New Testament? But, then in verse 11, Paul writes this, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Is that not the most hopeful verse for us this morning? We all knew who, know who we were before we met Christ. And Paul says, but God washed you. Ephesians chapter 5, 25 through 27, Paul writes again, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Why? That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, Paul again, he writes this, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration, and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's another beautiful passage in the New Testament from the Gospel of John that illustrates this principle so well that I think I would be negligent if I didn't point it out. And that is in John chapter 13. We'll read the first 11 verses. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. Can you imagine that? Jesus knew that. And what did he do? He rose from supper. He laid aside his garments. He took a towel and he girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. 
Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Typical Peter, right? It's all or nothing with Peter. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. Exodus 29 speaks of the great washing that the priests had to experience before they could even enter the court of the tabernacle. This was a washing done to them by another. But there was another wash basin, which we'll look at in the future, just in front of the entrance to the tabernacle itself, where the priests would stop and wash their hands and their feet after they had performed their sacrificial duties. Maybe we can call it the little washing. I think this is precisely what Jesus was explaining to Peter in John 13 when he said, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. The New Testament says that the believer in Christ is sanctified past tense, and is being sanctified, present tense. When we first trusted Christ, he completely set us apart. He sanctified us, that's what the word means, and washed us and made us clean. But in our everyday activities, even activities done for the Lord, we get soiled by sin, and we need to return to Christ and his word regularly for another little washing, as we confess our sins to him and trust him for cleansing, even though we are, in Jesus' own words, completely clean. After being washed, the priest had to be clothed. But there's another important detail here. Not only does the priest not wash himself, he is also not dressed in his own clothes but in the clothes provided for him by God, beginning with a clean white tunic. Every believer must be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ in order to enter the blessed presence of God. There is no amount of work you can do to make a filthy, greasy, stained shirt clean and white. Some of you have these work shirts, right? I wear them in the winter, those white shirts. And you wear them and they get all stained and ugly and yellow and they're not nice. But wearing it day after day after day after day doesn't make it any whiter. No matter how hard you work, you're not going to make a white shirt. I'm sorry. It's going to have to go through the laundry. And even then, sometimes it's a desperate thing. God holds out a clean white robe to you when you have been washed by faith so that you might be covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Being washed is step one. Clothing yourself or being clothed with the righteousness of Christ is step two. 
Step three is to be anointed with oil. We have looked at some length in previous sermons how oil is an Old Testament type of the Holy Spirit of God. Once the priests are anointed, they are ready to do the work of God. I thought this week, um, some of you folks, maybe, maybe more ladies than others, but when you read this passage, I just want to let you know if you have a problem, okay? Sometimes it's my job to let you know when you have a problem. That's not reciprocal, by the way. <laughs> if you were reading this passage and you were thinking, they're sprinkling oil and blood on these nice, new, clean robes, how are they going to get that out? You have a problem. In any case, that's between you and the Lord. Maybe you and your husband. <clears throat> With these three ceremonies, washing, dressing, and anointing, the most personal section of the ritual has come to a close. I think it is important to note here, because I don't want any confusion, that God is not giving us a step-by-step -step program on how to obtain salvation, and that if we somehow get them in the wrong order, if we anoint before we wash or we whatever, we get them mixed up somehow, well, do you know what? Tough luck, it's hellfire for you. That's not, what, that's not what this passage is saying. Rather, God is describing in physical parables what he is doing in a person's immaterial part. What is it that he is doing in your unseen self? The moment you trust Christ as Savior, you are washed. You are clothed in Christ's righteousness. And you are anointed by the Holy Spirit of God. It's not a matter of a person's doing anything, but rather simply receiving what God is offering to you in his Son. Ours is not necessarily to completely understand what God is doing. He would like us to understand to the best of our ability, which is why he gives us these texts. But ours is to believe that he will do what he says he will do and to simply trust him. That brings us into the offerings, which uh, really is the rest of our passage today. There are three kinds of offerings that are described in verses 10 through 30. There is a sin offering, verses 10 through 14. There is a burnt offering, verses 15 through 18. And there is a consecration offering, which is similar to a peace offering, verses 19 through 30. Well, 28 really, but. Of these three, the consecration offering, the final one, is the most complex, involving waving the offering from east to west and north to south, and also heaving the offering vertically to the Lord. I talked about heave offerings before. We won't get into that. Um, but I'll let you consider those details on your own. Let's just look at the main themes of, of these offerings. So the sin offering is the first one we'll look at briefly. The washing at the door of the tabernacle was only one aspect of the symbolic cleansing from sin. In God's universe, every sin must be punished in order for God to remain perfectly just. 
The animal used for the sin offering was a bull. The bull was brought to the place of slaughter where the priests would press their hands on its head and confess their sins, symbolically imputing their sins to the animal. Then the animal was slaughtered, the blood was applied to the four corners of the altar and poured around the altar, and the best parts were burned on the altar to God, and the rest were taken outside the camp, it says, and burned on a garbage pile. Every part of this ritual is important because every part of it points us in some way to the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Our sins were laid on him at Calvary. But the part I want to just touch briefly on this morning is the command God gives to take the awful, or the awful, the leftover parts, outside the camp to be destroyed. I found a funny definition of the, the awful, <laughs> awful. Found, it was a funny definition. That part of the animal which only the desperate would eat. Well, that's good enough for me. Centuries after Moses, here in this text, the writer of the book of Hebrews wrote these following words. We have an altar, Christians, from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Such a humbling statement. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, Jesus, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. What can I say? The best of who you are, listen closely, the best of who you are is worse than any part of who Jesus is. And yet, because of his great love, he was willing to become that which was taken outside the gate that which you deserved and that which I deserved. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, the greatest exchange in the universe. The sin offering said, as it were, we have failed to give our best to God and our failure is sin. Our failure has been placed on this animal, which now, in our place, gives its best to atone for our failure. What about the burnt up? Uh, before we get to that, I have a question. 
all your sin was dealt with at the cross. Every one of them. Will you exchange your sin for Christ's righteousness? What about the burnt offering? The primary difference between the sin offering and the burnt offering, other than that this is a ram rather than a bull, is that with a burnt offering, the entire animal is burnt on the altar. In the Latin translation of the Bible, I found this interesting. A burnt offering is translated hollow cost. Whole burnt, wholly burnt. That's where the word holocaust came from. Entirely consumed by fire, which was the goal of evil men in, in the holocaust that we think of in history. One quick point about a phrase that occurs in verse 18 and 25 of our text. It says that the burning of these animals produced a sweet aroma before the Lord. Taken literally, this phrase means a soothing aroma or a peaceful aroma, an aroma of peace. God's wrath is satisfied in the sacrifice of Christ. And those who are in Christ by faith have peace with God. He is made at peace with us because of the wrath poured out on Jesus Christ in your place. Then there's the final offering, the consecration offering. This third offering, which involves a second ram, has many unique parts to it. The only one we'll consider for the sake of time is the application of the sacrifice on the ear, the thumb, and the toe of each priest. The clear indicator here, I think, is that those who are in God's service are to have every part of their lives consecrated to his use. The ear for hearing, the hand for working, and the foot for walking. Remember, Consecration means to have your empty hand filled with the perfect tools to complete the work. Furthermore, in this sacrifice, the blood was mixed with oil and was sprinkled on the priests and their robes. It is with this, this thought here that we'll close. The Christian believer, the follower of Jesus, is perfectly equipped to do God's work. He has been washed. He has been clothed in Christ's righteousness. Atoning sacrifice has been made at the cross and offered to God to make peace. And the life of Christ, the blood, is commingled, if I can use that word. It's not perfect, but it's, it's all I could think of. The life of Christ, the blood, is commingled with the Holy Spirit and applied by grace through faith to every person that trusts Christ. All that remains is this challenge. Are you, as a disciple of Christ, going to live in the reality of, God, of what God has already done? Or are you going to stay with the status quo? Vain and powerless like a tabernacle without blood. Beautiful, but bloodless.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so thankful for the cross of Jesus Christ that this text points us to over and over again. It is difficult for us as finite men and women and children to fully understand what happened there at Calvary. But you have in your word given us indicators as to what you have done for us and in our place. And although we do not fully understand it, we thank you for what you were willing to do because of your great love for us. Help us to return that love by offering to you our ears and our hands and our feet to do your work. Help us to serve our families, to serve our communities, and to do so in the power of the life of Christ and the Spirit of God. We thank you for these things and pray them in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.